0: And welcome to another episode of So You Have a Podcast, made by WXVU Villanova Radio. Today, I have the honor to be joined by Liam and Sam, hosts of the podcast Gladio Free Europe. Guys, hello, hello. how are you doing today? Yeah. Hey, doing great. Yeah, doing great. Thanks so much
1: for uh, for asking us to come on. We just love to talk about ourselves.
0: Uh, and that is what you are here to do. So, what inspired you guys to start Gladio Free Europe? Uh... T- uh, I guess I can go first.
1: Uh, for me, really, it was uh, podcasting is something that I'd wanted to do for a while, for a couple of years, um, and it just so happened that I happened. I mean, it just so happened that I fell in with a group of people, uh, Liam, Sam, and Abram, who were yeah. also interested in uh, pursuing this venture. So uh, next thing you know, we uh, were podcasting, and now we're up to episode 66, I think it is. So it's been a yeah, while. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think kind of more specifically, uh, right at the start of COVID, the, the four of us, so me, Russian and Sam, Samby and Abram, uh, we all started having these kind of regular Zooms, just kind of chatting about whatever, you know, just because we were bored, we were all stuck at home, just chatting about history, we were in a history Twitter chat already. And then just somebody had the idea that it would be fun to start doing this as a podcast. I think that we saw a couple movies over Discord and Zoom already. So that's kind of how the the movie angle got brought in. And uh, because myself and Abram both have kind of a a movie background, and Sam, uh, Russian Sam, has a very exciting history background, we thought it would be a pretty cool little mix if we all kind of came together like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Sam, do you have anything else to
1: add? Uh, I I guess I could talk a bit about myself and how I came to this beyond... uh, beyond uh, the podcast itself. Like basically uh I'd been on an academic track since high school, right? It was just something that I had been hyping myself up for for forever. That like, oh, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go do my PhD, I'm gonna become a professor and I'm gonna get to teach people stuff and it's gonna be great. Uh but then I actually got into grad school and Uh, the conditions just seem to deteriorate further and further. Uh, Next thing you know, I finish my master's literally right before COVID starts, and academia is just totally eviscerated. So I guess the long and short of it is that uh, you can say that this is sort of an alternate academic path for me. This is a way to pursue my passion, uh, something that I actually studied uh, without having to worry about being adjunct faculty earning like twenty thousand dollars a year
0: or whatever yeah very interesting i've heard horror stories from uh professors or just visiting professors about how difficult it is in academia right now it's Mm -hmm. right out there yeah 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 and for me this is always just a hobby um i was a i was a history major in undergrad
2: um but since then i've uh, been mostly in the film world i've been doing a lot of very low level film and tv development stuff for the last couple years so uh i'm having a lot of fun in that world. Uh, but uh, history was always a really big kind of fun hobby of me. It, for, for me, it's always something that I, uh, a lot of what I engage with a lot on social media is history stuff. So that's kind of, it was this kind of nice little marriage of my two main hobbies, you know, cinema and uh, history with this podcast. So,
0: yeah. And so sort of, since we're talking about you guys, uh, more personal background, do you have any historical periods that you are each particularly interested in?
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, well, I mean, it just happens to be whatever I happen to be uh, researching at the moment. Right. Uh, Before I was uh, doing the podcast, I should clarify that I was doing Middle Eastern history specifically, and I was honestly kind of myopic about how I went about the study of history where I uh, just with the rise of like increasing specialization uh I just wasn't really pushed to explore other areas nearly as much um and I feel like that's a that was a big mistake uh just because it means that you have a very limited perspective you don't have a great idea of like the wider world and the wider systems yeah. uh wa- uh where events are happening um so, Yeah. uh, Now I'm, I have a more holistic approach. I'm studying a lot of periods that I didn't really think I'd be interested in before. Uh, Currently I'm looking at the cult of the saints, uh, which is again, something I never thought I'd be uh, interested, but to, but to circle back to my favorite period of history, I still have to say that it would be like the 20th century, just because it's what I'm most familiar with. It's the one that's most relevant to our times. And it's um it's just very like it's a time period when you can touch right like yeah, yeah. you can still speak to people who lived through many of these events and yeah that's what really drew me in the first place when i was first starting to get interested in history
2: Yeah, yeah. I I send a lot of 20th century stuff as well in undergrad, but I've mostly been interested kind of in the opposite, the stuff that is the least relevant, the stuff that has the least uh, actual political implications for, you know, modern discourse, Uh, at least just for like purely aesthetic reasons. I was always most into like the, you know, like the ancient stuff, the medieval stuff, Uh, the the kind of history that is, uh, I think, a lot more oftentimes uh, more exotic and exciting and I have to admit that my interest in a lot of these areas is a lot of times it's it's pretty juvenile. It's just because like I, I find it interesting. But I think that uh, studying history for its own sake is absolutely valid, and uh, and I think is sometimes one of the better ways to approach history, especially when you're dealing with uh, events more alienated from the present day. And I think that uh, in general, I kind of hazard against trying to draw too many inferences about the present from the past, because I think that usually that just leads to a misinterpretation of both time periods.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you both for your answers. So before we get on to some of the other questions, could you briefly talk about the name Gladio-Free Europe? Because I find it very funny, (laughs) but for our less parapolitically inclined listeners, could you give a little explanation?
2: I I think the main reason that this podcast is called Gladio for Europe is because that was a very funny joke in, like, early
0: 2020.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Gladio takes its name, of course, from Operation Gladio, which is, as you mentioned, is this uh, parapolitical uh, set of stay-behind programs in Cold War-era Europe. Basically, what it was was that... uh, well, gladio specifically Italy. Sorry. Yes, specifically Italy. Yeah, but it's often used kind of as a metonymy for these this broader yes. set of programs that may or may not have existed in other countries. Uh, most famously in Belgium, in France, in Germany. What it basically is is this uh, insane Cold War era plan where the CIA and NATO were giving, uh, in, in in coordination with European governments, were setting up these basically right wing militia programs to protect European societies in the event of any kind of soviet invasion so basically it meant giving money and guns to neo nazis to uh to potentially you know, to fight communism and i think that uh the the interplay between communism and fascism is something that i've always been very interested in i think that the uh specifically anti-communist nature of fascism is something that is sometimes ignored in liberal historiography or is something that is kind of mythed. and gladio was something that was being discussed very heavily Around like the start of COVID, especially by a lot of other podcasts that we are fans of, and I'm sure you're fans of as well. Uh, and so that's kind of the main thing. And also, it's it's a great fun, you know, Radio for Europe, Gladio for Europe, and you know, as because you know, Sam and I, and we're all committed anti-fascists. I think that we would all love to live in a Gladio-free Europe
0: and a Gladio-free world more broadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That's what we're building towards. All right, uh,
0: yeah, that's uh, it's a great title, very funny. Uh, Thank you. gives me a chuckle every time i read it um so I'm not, I'm not i'm not the best at puns but i think that is the best one i've ever come up with <laughs> so moving on to more of like the uh production of gladiator for europe has there been a learning curve in the way you guys approach it <laughs> yeah how do you do yes, it yeah. now when you started
2: uh well, let me just say that uh the learning curve was so steep that our first three episodes are now completely inaccessible because they were so <laughs> bad uh compared to our earlier stuff uh but i'll, I'll let russian sam take this one
1: yeah uh t- um in the beginning when we were just starting like we basically had no idea what we were doing right like we all uh consume podcasts. We listen to a lot of them, but nevertheless uh, consuming and producing are two totally different things. There's a lot you have to learn. Uh, I have a tendency to uh, just keep rambling on and uh, it's been a struggle to cut down on that really. Uh, But yeah, we, uh, we had to be better at organizing our thoughts and to basically structure Way uh to structure each episode in a way yeah. that like flows naturally and yeah, also yeah. makes sense to the listener who is probably who might be getting yeah. exposed to any of this for the first time yeah, ever yeah
2: and, and i would say i've got a shout out abram here Yeah, he's not as directly involved as he used to be because of work commitments but he was like our brian epstein he really helped us organize ourselves and become a more serious uh Podcasting team. And for a while, he handled all of the production, which is a really huge commitment. Since then, Russian Sam and I have picked up more of the producing slack when it comes to editing, which I, I'm very fortunate in. I got, I, I'm so, uh, let me take a step back. I'm so grateful for Abram for doing so, so much amazing producing work in like the first year this podcast was around. But since I've been taking more editing on myself, uh, I've learned a lot about how to. Not just how to edit a podcast, but also kind of what goes into like you know writing a podcast and producing. It gives it gives it gave me a better and broader perspective of the whole enterprise.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Abram is totally indispensable. Big shout out to Abram.
0: Yeah. So what what is some of the process like? Do you guys have a, a writers' room where you you know hash out <laughs> ideas and then record? Is there a lot of editing usually? Oh yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, I think the usually uh, we spend about two weeks per episode. Uh, usually, what it is is that we just chat about something that catches our interest, if, whether it's a movie or just like a story or a certain time period. And then we just kind of usually what happens is one of us will say, "Oh, this could be a good idea," and then uh, one of us just kind of one single person starts working on uh, that that document. So we'll mix, we'll we'll be chatting in our group chats. So we'll have an idea, maybe a fan will have an idea. We'll look into that and we'll decide if it's a good idea for a podcast. And then one person will just start doing all the research. And then once we get closer to the date of recording, usually we might ask, like, if Russian Sam is doing something on zone, I might step in to help with the research or vice versa. And then uh, we really, te- we, we're, we are both, especially me, uh, terrible procrastinators. So we tend to do a lot of cramming in the last few days before the podcast is recorded, just figuring out what exactly... What kind of ma- information do we want to cover in this episode? What is less, dis- what is less central? And then eventually, the final uh, kind of the final writing stage really happens in the editing suite. Once you Russian samurai are actually editing this podcast, sometimes if uh, a certain line is a little bit irrelevant to the broader context, that can be cut, and the entire thing goes smoother, and the the whole the broader the, the the entire episode is more focused.
1: All right, mm-hmm. so, Sam, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I think Liam uh, did a great job summarizing it.
0: Okay, so now moving on to some of the uh, content of your show, uh, what is what are the limits to presenting historical events in movies that you found through watching a lot of historical movies? Well, it's, I mean, there's a number of problems here,
1: right? I mean, I guess the biggest one right off the bat is the fact that uh, movies are a, a, a for-profit product. They're made to yeah. make money. And naturally, that's going to lend itself to very particular interpretations of history. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that I would say, is one of the main hurdles. But even beyond that, like with movies, you have a very limited amount of space to cram all of this information into. And... That, of course, doesn't lend itself to a lot of nuance. Oftentimes you're going to be relying upon uh, the audience's preconceptions about a particular period uh, to like, basically fill in the blanks so they can like, comprehend what they're seeing exactly. And when yeah. that foundation isn't the most stable and the most factually informed in the first place, it leads to a lot of problems with how we understand history.
2: Yeah, totally. And even beyond that, I think that uh, there's a fundamental conflict, which I find very interesting uh, between the demands of the narrative and the demands of history, basically. And how in a, in a lot of cases, uh, changing the truth, or I shouldn't say changing the truth, in a lot of cases, editorializing or making assumptions about the past feels necessary to tell the good story. And I think it's really a choice of every filmmaker to... Uh, how much is acceptable to stray from the past, to stray stray from what we know about a certain time or place to tell a more engaging story. And I think there's not a single answer to that. I think it really depends on what kind of history you are telling and what kind of movie you're making. I think that um, it's incredibly dishonest to uh, stray from the accepted record and then present what you are doing as the single truth, as... Some historical filmmakers are notorious for doing, but I think that extemporizing uh, or editorializing to, uh, to in ways that tell a better story, I think sometimes that like I think sometimes you can get away with that. And a lot of my favorite historical films aren't necessarily incredibly historically accurate, but they're just very fun. Like, uh, I, uh, come on, a night's tale. Everyone loves that, right? And it's like that's like the the medieval movie with a queen soundtrack. There's nothing remotely historically accurate about it. Uh, the, I think one of the main characters is Edward the Black Prince. Nothing like the actual guy. But it's still a great movie. It's just it's not really a movie about the actual Middle Ages. It's a movie that uh, is about you know how we might imagine and remember the Middle Ages today. And I think that's uh, more broadly something that really interests me about historical fiction. Is not what it tells us about the past as it happened. But what it tells us about the past as we remember
0: the past. Hmm. Yeah, very thorough answer. do you have something to add? Uh, no, no. Okay. Um, so you kind of both touched on this a little bit, but what do you think separates good historical movies from bad ones?
1: Uh, I mean, in terms of a good movie or a good history, because well, as Graham said... Yeah, three, yeah, yeah no, 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 yeah. I'm Ryan, well, I guess, Ryan I can you
2: repeat that? I
0: cut mean, you off. Yeah, I guess, like... Yeah, I guess you could take it, like, separately. Like, what makes a good uh, movie, like, in terms of presenting it, like, historically accurately, which is pretty self-explanatory, and then, like, a good movie, and then, like, how do you adjudicate, like, how much historical accuracy you want to put in versus how much of a compelling narrative you want to put in? Sandy,
2: you can go
1: first. Uh, I mean... I guess a good movie is just a good movie, you know, it's uh, you know it when you see it, even if you can't really uh, quantify it. But in terms of the history angle specifically, I would say that a good historical movie is one that um, doesn't necessarily give you all of the facts, but which uh, describes a, a wider truth. Uh, that really captures more of the essence of what living in this period uh, would have been like, even mm-hmm. if the events are taking place within a totally, uh, like an otherwise totally fictional uh, setting and characters, right? Um, so I'd say that there's a lot of really there, there's a fair number of high budget movies that look great and are I guess historically accurate but they just don't really hit and then there are other movies that uh maybe don't look as great but which do capture this wider truth so to speak
2: Mm yeah yeah I would say it really it depends on what you're trying to do what what the filmmaker is trying to accomplish Uh, I think that a lot of my favorite historical fiction uh does embellish heavily and a lot of your historical fiction does not um And I think it really kind of depends on what is the work of art you're trying to create here. Uh, One clever way to do this, uh, I think, which is I think the most successful example of historical fiction editorializing that I can think of is uh, Wolf Hall, which is a book by Hilary Mantel, which is also a really good miniseries from like 2015, I want to say, it is very, it's it's set in the 16th century and it's about Thomas Cromwell, who was one of the chief advisors to Henry VIII. He was a commoner, who was really the only major commoner in the Tudor court at that time, broadly speaking. So he was an interesting guy. And of course, uh, if you recognize his last name, he was the great, great uncle of Oliver Cromwell. So he was from a very important family. Um, Hilary Mantel read basically everything available at, at about the Tudor court at this time. And what she was especially interested in were the rumors. Things that pop up in one or two books, in letters written between different courtiers, that may or may not be true, like whether someone might actually be the king's illegitimate son, whether uh, the princes in the tower were killed by Richard III or by Henry's father, stuff like that. Assumptions and guesses and conspiracy theories from the time That she found interesting and that she thought that she could weave into her narrative in ways that would ultimately add some, uh, you know, some more depth and meaning to the work. So she basically, uh, she takes a lot of myths that historians might be skeptical of, but because they were believed at the time and because her characters are living in this time, she presents these myths and rumors as if they were true, which I think is, yeah, I think it's a smart
0: thing to do. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, way to approach it. Um, So you kind of mentioned how you have to like, you have a lot of like historical like uh, info that seems like alien to uh, modern viewers, but you also have to convey a story that, you know, sells tickets by appealing to a, a modern audience. Yeah, you think that there's a tendency to Compromise too much in favor of presenting a view of history that is amenable to a modern audience that sacrifices some of the weirdness of history. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah, yeah,
0: and that's and it's incredibly common. Uh, I I think that uh,
2: people living in past societies just had very different values than we happen to have today, and it can be really hard to communicate past values to modern people. Like uh, something you see both these days on social media, especially and in culture more broadly, is people of like any political bent trying to project their politics onto earlier societies, which would not have understood modern political language because they think that will justify their politics. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit, I'm kind of against that for for both reasons. Like like for instance, you know, people love saying that like Jesus was socialist. Uh, I think it's kind of goofy because Socialism would have been meaningless to somebody living in first century Roman Empire, and but even beyond that, Jesus doesn't have to be a socialist for socialism to be a worthwhile project. I don't think that past historical precedent is necessary to justify or legitimize modern politics, but a lot of people don't get that, and they feel this need to connect their personal beliefs and their personal virtue towards the past. Um, it's like uh, I, I, I like The Northman a lot, uh, but the, the movie The Northman. Um, it drew heavily on, on a lot of very modern scholarship about the the Norse era very exciting scholarship that i'm really into this meant though that people who were interested in a more i don't know like hollywood a more traditional uh viking narrative some of those guys were really mad about uh the northmen and then on the flip side you had the kind of inverse pole controversy where people who uh were so bothered by the Absolutely horrendous misappropriation of Norse history by right-wing racist groups today had an aversion to the Northmen because they they were they feared that any kind of depiction of that era might inadvertently support some kind of reactionary agenda.
0: So the next question I have is do you think there are any historical eras that lend themselves more to film than others?
1: Oh, yeah, we were just uh, talking about this with that. With Matt Chrisman the other week, we had him on to talk about The Last Valley, which is one of the only movies made in English about the Thirty Years War. And I mean, basically, it's just kind of a jarring period all in all for uh, for a modern audience, just because like on the one hand, you have people on horseback and uh, you have like uh, some vestiges of these uh, quarkly values of chivalry and whatnot, but but also yeah. you have guns and people just yeah. don't really know what to do with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and this is why I think the early modern period is so exciting because of you know those all those changes and these kind of contradictions to the modern eye. But yeah, it makes it makes early modern history a bit tricky to depict, especially the later early modern period. Once you know, like modern cannons and artillery were being so heavily used. Uh, I, th- I think really what it is though is that there are certain genre paradigms that are very familiar to filmmakers. It has a, there's, there are certain times and places that give us a, that that are associated with tropes and aesthetics that everyone understands. Like the old west, you know, cowboys, Indians, you know, bank robbers, train heists, yada, 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 talky talk piano, you know, uh, middle ages, knights, witches, you know, horseback, all that kind of stuff. Um, So there are certain times and places that Audiences and filmmakers instinctively understand, but eras that stray from that, people have trouble with wrapping their heads around what life was like then. Just like a, as a micro example from my own life, uh, a while back I wrote when I was at in, in a, in a, me, when I was at film school, I wrote a script that was set in the early 20th century, like 1910-ish, looking at the kind of birth of modern police in California, and that's an era that a lot of people have trouble wrapping their heads around because it's it's not Victorian. World War One hasn't happened yet. It's still like twenty years off, or it's still a decade off from the Jazz Age, so it's this uncomfortable middle ground where people just are not as familiar with the uh, the aesthetics, in particular, of that era, the and also the the the, va- the social values of that era, which I think leads to a lot of eras being unfortunately ignored by historical filmmakers. I think the Thirty Years' War uh, is an incredibly rich source of inspiration for storytellers and that's why it's a shame that the only English language movie about it uh, in the last 50 years has Michael Caine doing a terrible German accent.
0: (laughs) Yeah um, and something that has been kind of touched on is how the way history is popularly imagined often tells us more about us now and what we think about ourselves Mm -hmm. than actually what happened. Can you guys talk about that a little bit and maybe give some examples? well yeah
2: historical memory is something that interests me a lot and that that's a a very common theme in our podcast is what historical media says about the time that created it and it always says so much um i think that uh uh just as an example right now um one era that we've talked about a bit or yeah an era that we've talked about a bit that doesn't get much attention in hollywood but has gotten a lot, but is very important to the formation of modern politics uh, is the kind of early medieval period, like when different ancient uh, tribal groups were settling down in the ruins of the Roman Empire, all that stuff. Uh, There's a lot of really interesting historical work being done right now on that period, the fall of Rome and the earliest Middle Ages. Guy Halsall is a really good historian about that era in particular, and we draw a lot from that one guy especially. But it's a it's a very it's a surprisingly politically charged era because a lot of modern European countries root or attempt to root their identities in historical records from that era. A lot of people are really attached to the idea that their modern national identity, which generally speaking, has a lot to do with modern politics. Like, you know, that there wasn't like a the German cultural identity was Largely shaped by like the Thirty Years' War, and then uh, and of course there wasn't even any kind of unified Germany, German nation, until the later 18th century, um, later 19th century. But a lot of German nationalist historians had a very strong interest in using the ancient past to justify and to legitimize their political ambitions. So that's why when uh, you're dealing with that era in particular, um, oftentimes the scholarship and uh, of like ancient Germanic tribes is unfortunately tainted by people whose political ideology was used to justify a lot of very very terrible things in the 20th century. Um, this is with the example of German nationals in particular. And and staying with that example, I think that a good example, uh, an interesting look at how kind of like a media depictions reflect historical memory one of our earliest episodes was on this netflix show called barbarians this german series about armenius this famous uh barbarian rebel against rome in like the year 50 ad around then it just got a second season uh it's, it's a fun show it's like it's like kind of classic like you know sword and sandal adventure with this barbarian setting but it's although it's very self-consciously rejecting a lot of the German nationalist precepts that uh, color and, I would say, uh, misinterpret the ancient past, it still falls into a lot of those same kinds of traps in depicting uh, the Germanic speaking barbarians as like inherently free and naturally democratic people using this language that made sense to modern to 19th century nationalists and makes sense to people with democratic ideals today but doesn't necessarily reflect how these ancient peoples saw themselves and then on top of that a a lot of other uh, scholarship of Roman times and uh, uh in general uh has this kind of uh very kind of like integrationist model like the idea that like oh the romans brought europe together and that's really good which clearly shows this kind of you know uh uh eu kind of european integration ideal going into modern politics which i think is kind of funny and it's it's just it's incredibly hard for people to not color uh their interpretation of the past with with their experience of the present and that is never more obvious than in historical fiction
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't even have to look at people misunderstanding the ancient past to see this in action. Just look at how World War Two is our automatic reference point for everything. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and like it's always like a lot of current events are always read through that gloss. Like someone is Hitler. Someone is uh, is uh, yeah. uh, someone is glusting for the Sudetenland. Uh, yeah. Yeah um etc it's just um i guess it's somewhat um more mediated in terms of world war II, because again most people living today have like a grandparent who fought who they they would have known that grandparents so there is an anchor there but on the other hand it also lends itself much more to um, political messaging just because it's something that looks vaguely familiar to people mm-hmm. um, and you could use that to ram any number of agendas through based on right. like these vague sentimental feelings for pop-pop.
2: Yeah, and that's why I think that if we're talking about you know the, the importance of historical accuracy in fiction, I think that it is most important when you're dealing with the mo with the most recent past like the 20th century 21st century because that's when uh it's very easy for any kind of any kind of interpretation of the recent past to basically serve as propaganda in some form um so i think that like just for example like a uh, so much so many hollywood movies about vietnam even if there are like nominally anti-war Ultimately, reinforce really unfortunate and often very racist ideas about Vietnamese people. Like the most infamous example is *The Deer Hunter*, is a very celebrated film. Film students, film scholars love it, but it has pretty repellent politics. Because even though it's um it is an anti-war movie, it does something very very weird. Which Rick Perlstein, who I'm a big fan of, was the first to point out, which is that. Uh, A lot of the inspiration of The Deer Hunter came from Time Magazine articles about atrocities being committed in Vietnam against prisoners. But the atrocities being committed and the prisoners in question were North Vietnamese prisoners held by the American-backed South Vietnam. There were terrible cases of South Vietnam, who was America's ally or puppet in the war, holding people in these underground prison cells in what they called tiger pits dug into the ground. The movie, The Deer Hunter, takes those real life atrocities, but instead makes them atrocities committed by the North Vietnamese communists against Americans, which is, I think, which I think is very repellent.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely a lot of Vietnam movies do this, even if they predict brutality, the way that they predict yes. to Vietnamese people is, is very uh, icky to uh, yeah. an audience today. And it's so common with the rock movies
2: too, you know?
0: yeah rock especially because pretty much everyone today has memories of, yeah. of that too yeah. yeah
2: yeah
0: and and it's interesting for modern things because they become much more they become mediated almost immediately like they mm-hmm. made movies about world war ii during world war ii they absolutely more, yeah yeah you know, is the, there anything the, yeah. that you guys might want to talk about uh sure well yeah i think it's that uh yeah his like his role like the construction of
2: historical memory happens while history is still happening. Uh, like, like the tropes of World War II movies of, you know, all like all these like Brooklyn Italian guys and like Southern good old boys come overcoming their differences to fight and fight the Nazis. Like those movies like that were being made when the war was still happening. you mentioned the old West. There were like a, a lot of the most popular writers in the like 1870s were writing Westerns when the West still existed. You know, like Bret Hart, like people like that, which I think is very funny. Um, and uh, a lot of times, uh, fiction is the main way people interface with the past and the present. And I think that fiction tends to loom a lot larger in the creation of historical memory than actual education does. Mm-hmm. And that's why, yeah. And so I think, which is, um, which is usually a bad thing. It usually means that um, misinterpretations that filmmakers make, for the sake of the narrative, for the sake of box office success, will lead to misinterpretations of the actual past. The only silver lining here is that uh, once these historical narratives are created, it's really, really hard to overturn them. So when nationalists and right wingers uh, these days try to deliberately distort history in a more nationalistic direction, if their nationalism conflicts with Hollywood and with uh, popular consciousness, it's really hard to fight that. So basically, I, I don't think DeSantis uh, can beat uh, can change American history too much in Florida because uh, movies people watch are always going to ma- play a bigger role in whatever they hear in school.
0: Yeah, you can't ban books uh, out of that uh, exactly, you know, popular yeah. conception. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And you,
2: even if you do ban the books, ultimately uh, a Disney princess movie is going to have a much bigger role. You know, like Aladdin is going to have a lot big, bigger role of your interpretation of like. The medieval middle east than a history book that's banned
0: in your school Hmm. yeah sam do you have anything to
1: add uh no no liam uh covered it all very beautifully
0: so uh kind of following from what we were just saying uh if you guys had a magic wand and you could change the public perception of certain historical events if you could you know take out the misconceptions and add a different perception mm-hmm. of you know big historical events or eras or whatever. Yeah. What would you change?
2: I'll, I'll let Sam think of a better answer because I'm just going to give a really bad obvious one, which is just the idea that like, you know, America is always the good guys. It's like, I, this is something that I'm sure like you and your listeners probably don't need to be corrected about. But uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of normies, they still have trouble accepting that um, the United States is capable of doing very bad things. And that just because the U.S. is engaged in a conflict with a foreign enemy doesn't mean that that enemy is necessarily more brutal or, you know, less in the right than than the U.S. Um, I think that this is most obvious with anything about the Cold War, with depictions of the uh, North Vietnam and Cuba. Um and I think that this still kind of rings true today, where it's very easy for Americans, in large part due to Hollywood, to accept absolute brutalities happening in other countries like in the soviet union but have trouble uh looking back on atrocities happening much closer to home so yeah if i could do anything i would basically try to uh take away the rose-colored glasses people have towards american history but that's such that's such a low-hanging fruit answer that um i'm sure russian sam can think of a better answer than that
1: yeah um i guess for me it would be that um It would be the idea that something being old is in and of itself good and something to be looked up to, like what William was talking about with like socialist Jesus or whatever. This uh, obsessive need to anchor something in the past to give it legitimacy rather than examining things on their own terms and coming to a conclusion based on based on that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's so common. Like uh I read a little bit about uh of David Graeber's and David Wengrow's the the uh, The Dawn of Everything, which is a very interesting new archaeological new archaeological and anthropological book about uh the social structures of a lot of indigenous people of the Americas. But what I don't like about some of the conclusions the book draws, and especially conclusions that a lot of fans of the book draw, are basically that because these politic, these social structures existed in- among these peoples in you know in, uh, in the Americas five hundred years ago. That means that uh, they somehow can justify social structures we're trying to build today. I think that's ultimately, even if it's well intentioned, that's often a that's basically a reactionary framework. The idea that something has to exist in the past, something has to be ancient for it to be worth building in the present. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's also very heavily predicated on this idea of the noble savage. That's just yeah, been uh, really pissing me off for quite a while. Like this idea that I, I that I mean, for example, that indigenous people are necessarily like living in harmony with nature and you know are all peaceful and kumbaya or whatever. And it's yeah, just rather like than
2: a- actively manipulating nature the way that basically all cultures, pretty mm-hmm. much all cultures, do. Like you know yeah. the yeah like the Amazon rainforest is a lot of the Amazon rainforest is quite recent because it was land that had been cultivated prior to colonization and genocide,
1: mm-hmm. or even going before that. Uh, there's a reason why the megafauna start disappearing
0: around the yeah, same time that yeah, the yeah, Americans start yeah. getting people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great critique of of the book. It it, it is interesting seeing how they talk about these like wonderful democratic structures in the new world. And then also talk about like the Mississippi Valley civilization. Yes. Bahrainage incredibly and, like, stratified. Yeah, stratified, stratified yeah. mm-hmm.
2: No, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. you know, Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you see kind of noble savage stuff with um, any cultures that people perceive of as primitive, uh, which is, it's always very condescending, even if it's well-intentioned. You see this when it comes to prehistoric peoples of Europe and the Middle East, you know, uh, and I think in general, there's this idea that it's, there's, there's a strong interest in, uh, with a lot of left-wing people in trying to both project your modern political understanding onto the past and then in return use this new interpretation of the past to justify your politics today even though that kind of justification is not necessary.
0: Yeah, definitely. It just made me think of a, a recent uh, Twitter poll that I saw going around: who was the good guys—the in World War One, the Central Powers or the uh, Entente? <laughs> just it kind of demonstrates how silly it is to project. Uh, absolutely, Twitter yeah. yeah. A modern good, yeah, no, yeah, and absolutely, a the yeah, no, yes,
2: then. yes. It's the, the, yeah, <laughs> right. this
0: is very funny. All right. Um, so now moving into sort of the last section, um, going into uh, some specific movies. Uh, about Mm -hmm. you know different historical periods and events so I want to hear what your favorite movies that depict like I'm gonna list a bunch of different eras and stuff for sure Uh, so starting with antiquity uh what are your favorite movies about ancient Egypt
2: oh there's Uh, so few like dude I I think I I just gotta say like there's there's, like there's the mummy and there's its prequel the scorpion king there's like the old mummy uh so I honestly, I gotta say, Brendan Fraser, the Mummy, it's really fun, and it's like one of the only ones I can think of.
1: Well, for me, I'm gonna say it's Prince of Egypt. Um, unfortunately, oh this God, one, what I saying?
0: Yeah, just thinking that. Yeah, but yeah, that's the better
1: answer. <laughs> yeah, uh, like again, not really historically accurate. There's zero evidence for any of the stuff that's described in Exodus, yeah, the Exodus in the archaeological yeah. record. But nevertheless, it's a very beautiful movie. It's very compelling. It's got yeah. uh, a beautiful soundtrack and it, um, again, it gives you a great look. Uh, it gives children a great look into basically the foundation of Western civilization, speaking as broadly as possible. Yeah. Like or, this is the foundation map. I'll,
2: I'll qualify that. Myth. Or I would say, you know, brings us all back home, uh, the origins of the popular consensus culturally the the popular history imagination of something called Western civilization
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, Let, uh, like again, I'm I'm using Western civilization as a shorthand. I'm not sure I even believe in such a thing but insofar as you can speak about uh Western civilization uh the Exodus story has to be a very important component of uh the understanding of that civilization of
0: itself Yeah definitely. So what about? Ancient Greece.
1: Um, I'm not very familiar with uh, ancient Greece and the movies about it. Uh, gonna need to uh, see what Guillaume suggests and watch that immediately.
2: It, it's it's not a great. It's it's, it's a terrible depiction of the past. Uh, but but it it is it's it's very fun and it sh- says a lot about how modern people uh, perceive the past. Uh, and that's the. Uh, uh, tr- uh, I think it's, is it Oliver Stone, Troy from like 2002? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think, uh, speaking of kind of modern interpretations of the past, uh, completely take away any uh, potential gay subtext with Achilles. <laughs> and instead, the first time you see him is he's in a threesome with two women.
0: Yeah, definitely recasting uh, something that's pretty pretty well known, I think, in a lot yeah. of <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yes>. Yeah. Like- <laughs>
2: you can see the pottery like they they, they didn't try to hide it (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. yeah uh so moving outside of a well western big air quotes Hmm. uh context uh what about ancient china or india or anything outside of uh, for sure uh also there's a
2: a chinese tv show i like a lot uh it's uh it, it might not be ancient per se it's it's like early medieval but it's called uh i think it's just called something like Bad Day in Chang'an, I think that might be the English title. Or oh, no, yes, I've heard Longest Day in Chang'an. And it's this like uh it's it's very long, so most Chinese TV shows are, but it's this really beautifully constructed kind of conspiracy theory movie, a conspiracy movie about an attempt to assassinate all these Tong dynasty officials in the capital. Oh interesting. And I don't know enough about Chinese like material culture to say if it's historically oh. accurate, but it's definitely believable. And it's it's very interesting and exciting and it goes into the kind it touches on the uh the kind of ties that tong era china in like the 8th ninth, 10th century had with the cultures of the steppe like the turkic and mongolic speaking peoples that they interacted with very heavily which i think is kind of cool
0: did either of you see the movie The Great Wall, I think it was called? <laughs> oh, yet. I heard yeah, of it. I, get, I, I saw a little bit about it. Uh, yeah, and
2: that's where uh, Matt Damon
0: plays like a Roman guy
2: hired to like defend the Great Wall of China for monsters.
0: He gets I like, got, it, impressed I, basically by them. Like, uh-huh. They're just like taking <laughs> movies like, all right, I'll help you out. You're, you're telling I, you I can't
2: believe
1: is- Zhang Yimou made that.
2: Oh, I know. Yeah, it's, it's a beloved director. Like that. Uh, although I must say, uh, I think a better term might be he gets shanghaied
0: yeah <laughs> um all right so last one in antiquity uh ancient rome
2: it's gotta be i claudius that's a show not a movie but it's i claudius is just so well done also a good example of one that isn't necessarily very historically accurate because they the the writer robert graves who did the visual novel he did quite a lot of things in his in, with his characters that those characters did not do in real life but mm-hmm. it's a really fun way of looking at the past and it's a great, if, if you're not familiar with uh, the, with like early Roman imperial history, like the uh, the first century, so the same era as barbarians, the same era as like a lot of Bible movies, it's set, it's set in the lifetime of Jesus. Uh, if you're not familiar with what was going on in Rome in the first century, it's a great jumping off point. You just got to take it all with a grain of salt. Treat it as fiction, not as history.
1: mhm Yeah, for Rome, I'm going to have to give a bit of a more unconventional answer and say life of Brian, because I mean, technically, it fits the bill, right? Yeah, Uh, definitely. Yeah. uh, It's, of course, a really funny look at uh, history. And again, I think it's great world building because. Um, Again, it's not historically accurate in the slightest just because, um, I mean, the Judean people's front, the people's front of Judea, like Mm -hmm. like a lot of it is just ribbing at uh, at current events in like the 60s and 70s, of course. But it also Mm -hmm. does a great job of sketching out the context of where Jesus emerges, right? Where Mm -hmm. he where you're living in this land under foreign occupation, where a lot of people end up losing because of that and you have an entire uh class of people who are going around and preaching uh to uh, uh to people who are living under these conditions and are yeah. feeling really lost uh so um uh, again probably without intending to do it i think that um that monty python did a great job of sketching out what living in this period would have been like
0: Thank you. Uh, So before moving on, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you your guys' thoughts on Gladiator, because that is (laughs) probably the biggest, most popular movie that depicts ancient Rome in popular memory.
2: Yeah, yeah I think it has to be yeah and it, they just announced the sequel I think with Austin Butler so Elvis as uh <laughs> Maximus's son I believe um uh yeah so uh, it did the, I think that it did it okay I'll say this uh it gets so from a historical accuracy perspective it's like totally bunk but I think that uh in terms of getting people interested in ancient history I think it probably uh I think it's, I, I think it has a, a very positive impact. I think, um, for the most part, like, I think there's a lot of people who decided to study history as a hobby or even as a profession because of the success of that movie and other movies that came in its wake. Like, like, you know, Troy, the one I mentioned earlier, I think Troy only came out because Gladiator was a hit. Um, it's, it's a good narrative. It's like classic, you know, Hollywood heartstrings kind of stuff, just like Braveheart. Um, and just like Braveheart, it gets a lot wrong, but, uh, I, I think it's I, I think it's a like, it's a fine movie I think if it has any negative impact it's that uh uh a lot of really annoying right-wing guys are really into Marcus Aurelius right now and I think that <laughs> movie is probably the
0: reason for that Sam you have anything to add on Gladiator
1: uh on Gladiator itself not really just because I haven't seen it since I was a teenager um but I mean, that kind of stuff is kind of why I was drawn to having a history movie podcast in the first place, right? Because Mm -hmm. again, you're giving, uh, you're sketching out like the basic contours of this world and you're using the podcast as a medium, uh, to dive into the history of that. While at the same time, you're able to use the movie as a reference point so that even if people aren't really like familiar with, uh, uh, third century Roman military life, they can uh, nevertheless just see, oh, yeah, that's what's shown in the movie. And this is what that actually means. Wow, that's really cool.
2: Yeah. And also, I'll just say that uh, one thing I like about it a lot is that I, I have a lot of respect for both Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe for just like finding a historical era they're interested in for a couple of years and then like making a movie about that time. I think I think like, I would absolutely do that if I if I had their clout in the industry.
0: Well, I, I actually do have a question, kind of in that vein, for the end. So we'll, we'll get to for sure. Like that. So moving on to the Middle Ages, uh, what do you guys think is a good uh, depiction of the unfortunately named Dark Ages, if you can really call them that? Um,
2: it's, it's yeah, not a lot. So it's all to think for a second, and a lot of a, a lot of like, well, actually, I'll just say the Northmen because I it came out recently. And I liked it a lot. Uh, it's a it's a depiction of Norse society that. Draws a lot from Hollywood, but I think does a good job at trying to kind of recapitulate these tropes in a way that uh, blends them with recent scholarship to give a view of the early Middle Ages, which is not what viewers are expecting. And is probably more faithful, certainly more faithful than like the most Viking media. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I would say that one, but I'll let Sam take it
1: uh i'd have to say the last duel um i'm not super familiar with movies of this period but oh, i watched you, that yeah, one that, recently later but
2: yeah the last was great
1: oh um uh, I, I mean it's like right on the cusp of the crusades right so i mean that would count as the dark was, ages no
2: it's for it's set in 1300s it's oh like,
1: okay yeah yeah so a little early um in that case
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah not sure in that case um yeah all right uh so you kind of got this with the Northmen, but vikings
2: mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we 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 should talk about uh there's a
0: let's let's
2: talk about other viking media because a lot of it's well it's very fun from an entertainment standpoint but it's just like it's not remotely you know like it's, it's 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 a very cartoonish view of the past like for example uh history channel vikings uh it's a fun show i, I think you've you've seen most of it right sam
1: uh i've seen up to like season four i think
2: yeah it, it's just like uh it, It's interesting because it starts out uh, with a very old school kind of like gung-ho, very kind of like, you know, macho Mm -hmm. Viking depiction. The kind of things that like bad people who like the Vikings like a lot. And then it's kind of funny as the show goes on, you start seeing the perspective of Norse culture sort of change. It doesn't become more critical of the brutal aspects of Norse culture. Instead, it kind of like tries to it kind of shifts to a more kind of like woke Vikings attitude, which I think is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It kind of shows how you know yeah. how the values changed among the people who made the show as it goes on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one, thing, one thing I think is kind of goofy, or I don't know, I don't know I'm not goofy. Uh, there's a new Vikings show called Vikings Valhalla, which is like the, the sequel spinoff that's on Netflix now. And I think it's got higher production values than the original. The writing's a little bit weaker. Um, but what I think is interesting is that it tries to make... Uh, It it depicts descendants of the Vikings living in medieval, in like Anglo-Saxon Britain as basically uh, like an an oppressed ethnic group who suffer racial discrimination. And I think that's a a little bit of a risky road to go down, but I do think it's kind of an unexpected angle. And I'm not sure I totally agree with that depiction, but I know there certainly was stigmatization of people who were of Norse descent living in England and so I think that uh, I think that this kind of change in perspective that you see with some media in the last like 10 years, it does lead to some interesting stuff, even if it's not mm-hmm. necessarily accurate and might have some not so great implications if you look too closely at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and before we continue, I would just like to uh, put in my two cents on Northman uh, just because i um, it's just something that I have been thinking about earlier in the conversation. Liam talked about the challenges of communicating past values to a contemporary audience. Yeah. And that's really why I enjoyed the Northmen so much because they do an excellent job of showing that like these people are nothing like what you would comprehend. I mean, they're yeah. like uh, they're like in communion with various gods. They're, Uh, living under a very rigid system of honor, which basically uh, impels them to seek revenge, even if it means their own death. And um, it's just... I have a feeling that, like, a lot of the right-wing fans of this movie either don't really understand what they are idolizing or would just... uh, uh, go in there and drop dead immediately.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it, it, that movie, I, I, don't, I don't know, I guess, I don't want to spoil it necessarily, if you haven't seen it, but it has a tr- it has an ending that is tragic from a modern perspective, and Robert Eggers definitely knew what he was doing with that. He was trying to show that uh, this character does something that modern people could not comprehend and would see as incredibly repellent, and it has disastrous consequences from him. But in the specific social context of this character's world, his decisions make sense even if they horrify the audience and i think that's kind of cool um one episode one episode we did a while back was on this roman movie called quo vadis about early christianity it's a, it's a pretty good movie it's from the 50s but what i found most affecting about quo vadis was that their characters christian characters and pagan characters both have deaths that are very noble in that respective culture there is this noble pagan guy this like virtuous pagan who kills himself because that was seen as the most honorable death for a Roman patrician. But then among the Christians, you see all these people get martyred. You see, there's a scene where St. Peter is crucified upside down, which is like the biblical narrative, because for him with that belief system, dying at your enemy's hand for your beliefs, instead of killing yourself to protect your honor, that is what is most virtuous. And I think that's a very cool, very deliberate decision on the part of the filmmakers of Bovatis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. So Moving to the later Middle Ages, what are some good depictions of the Crusades?
2: There's not that many. Uh, There's the Cecil B. DeMille Crusades from the '30s, which is one of those like huge spectacles that nobody cares about anymore because it was made, it was black and white, Mm -hmm. and people only want to watch the color epics um but of course the the ones the other one you have to mention which i actually never got around to watching until a few years ago i was really slow on this the famous one it's also ridley scott uh it's uh kingdom heaven um so that's one where uh i I know he definitely plays fast and loose with a lot of the details and i think that most of the characters are most of the 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 primary characters are very um are, are totally fictitious and there's and uh there are some scenes that are a little cheesy and the story doesn't totally work all the way, but visually it's just really, really beautiful. Uh, The depiction of King Baldwin, the kid in the gold mask, like that, come on, that's so cool. Like, you you gotta love it. Uh, And uh, it it has a very kind of, uh, I think in its own way, and talking about just a little bit historical memory here, it has a very modern kind of 2000s view of the crusades very much informed by uh, a kind of moderate liberal anti-war on terror kind of message that has an understanding of both modern conflicts in the Middle East, particularly, you know, the Iraq war, which was like just starting, I think when that movie came out, like two and four, two as one of another kind of like series of, you know, pointless conflicts in the Middle East between different cultures that should just get along with each other. So then ultimately kingdom of heaven has this kind of message of, Promoting understanding between the Saracens and the Crusaders. Uh, yeah.
0: Um, okay. So kind of getting into the high middle ages slash Renaissance period. What do you guys think?
2: You go first, Sam. I think you, are. you have an answer.
0: Uh, t- I'm I'm going to have to go with
1: um, Andrei Rubioff, uh by Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. That's of course a classic. It's about an icon maker. And, uh, in uh, ruse uh in like the 13th 14th century i want to say and it, it's an incredibly beautifully shot film it's got great acting it's got everything that you could possibly want in a historical movie so mm-hmm. uh uh run don't walk to watch i'm <laughs> <Rubiovi> immediately
2: <laughs> and i'll say uh kurosawa's throne of blood and if anyone hasn't seen that you got to watch it immediately it's Akira Kurosawa doing Macbeth as a story of a medieval Japanese shogun. And uh, the story is totally fictitious. It's not about anything that ever actually happens, I don't think. But what I like about it a lot is that Kurosawa and his production design team, they made a really strong effort to break away from a lot of the visual aesthetic tropes you see in other samurai movies to look deeper at the actual archaeological record of medieval Japan. So the costumes feel very different and the acting style I think is based on traditional Japanese theater so it's a it's it feels very alien in some ways more so than most Japanese films but it's really exciting and just really beautifully done it's I think it's from the late 60s it's black and white but it's just really gorgeous and it's a it's a view of feudal Japan really unlike anything that's been done before or since. Throne of Blood.
0: Very cool. I haven't seen it. I'll have to put it on my list. Great. All right. Uh, are there any other Middle Ages movies that you guys would like to mention before we move on?
2: Uh, last couple of years, there's been a, a few really good ones. Um, like, I think just last year we had both uh, The Green Knight, which I really had, I really enjoyed. Uh, mostly, it mostly driven as as kind of uh, from a filmmaking perspective. It's just it's a very fun narrative. They do a lot of cool things there. Some of the choices feel a little are a little bit too kind of like goofy for goofiness's sake but i i really enjoyed it um uh another one that came out last year that sam already mentioned was uh the last duel which was also very interesting i think that was a good one that um does a great job uh showing um the uh depicting the values of a previous era in a way that you don't usually see it's i think just in the same vein as the northmen The director uh, takes pains to show that uh, the values that were normal in this era were very bad for a lot of people, and that you know, uh, which I think is a a nice antidote to the kind of unconscious uh, lionization of of older values that people do, even on the left sometimes. And so, so that's why I I like Mm -hmm. that one a lot. Uh, going back 20 years earlier, uh, I think I also mentioned this, uh, earlier, uh, A night's Tale. It's it's great, man. Like I, I love it. I I can watch the movie like any time of day. I can watch it all day long. It's just it's super fun. R.I.P. Heath Ledger. Uh, also, uh, Mark Addy, who plays Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, that's one of his first roles as this like jolly chubby blacksmith.
0: Hmm.
1: Sam, do you have any? Uh, mm, no, not really. I'm not super familiar with this period, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, last duel. Yeah. Ch- check it out. Uh, you'll so, get an uh, idea of what feudalism entailed in practice.
2: Yeah. Uh, also, also, I still get around. To re- I still have to get around to reading the book. But uh, the film of In the name of the rose by Umberto Eco, really good. Uh, it's it's about it's uh, if you look if, if if anyone's played that game Pentiment that just came out like a couple months ago, you would love in the name of the rose. It's about life in a medieval monastery, and it goes surprisingly deep into the uh, the role of Platonic philosophy in uh, medieval Christianity, and especially the role of Platonic philosophy in heresy, which is kind of cool. All
0: right, so moving on to the early modern period, what are some of the best depictions of the colonial Americas? The whole thing. Ooh, okay. Uh, Okay. You go, Sam. Oh, oh,
1: okay. Uh, Recently, I watched this Canadian movie called Black Robe, which is really interesting. It's basically the story of a Jesuit uh, in very early French Canada who has to uh, go from uh, from the big settlement into one of the faraway outlying settlements where they're mm-hmm. in some success in converting uh, some of the locals. Um, and so basically, it's kind of... It's an exploration of early colonial encounters. It does a great job of showing the dynamics uh, between early Europeans and Native Americans, Mm -hmm. it uh, depicts uh, their values. Uh, Once again, big sticking point. It's hard to get a sense of who these people were uh, without uh, falling back on a lot of uh, really well-intentioned but ultimately harmful ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, But this movie, it does a great job both of showcasing uh, Native American life, uh, their cultures, uh, um, their uh, uh, the competition between Native Americans and how the French step into all of that, basically.
2: Yeah. Uh, before we go to the the future U.S., I'll just say one other non-U.S. example, uh, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. I think it's a great movie by Werner Herzog, starring Klaus Kinski as this real-life mad conquistador who tried to proclaim himself emperor of South America in the like 1540 or then, pretty early. Uh, it's the story of the movie deviates pretty heavily from what the real Aguirre actually tried to do. He was actually much more successful even than the movie depicts him as. But it, it gets, it's, it's a very fun, very spooky movie that gives you a lot to think about, about um, just kind of colonization and uh, what exactly... These guys were trying to do, and who are the kinds of personalities attracted to a colonial project and all that that entails?
0: Um, So, now moving on to the American Revolution. What movies do you guys like about the revolution? There's
2: not a surprisingly not that
0: many. Like, obviously, there's The
2: Patriot, which I'm not really a fan of for a few reasons. uh, there's like, uh, there's some old, a lot of older American Revolution stuff. And there was that TV show Turn, I think it was on like on Netflix, which is about like, it was very, it was kind of mid budget. It was kind of, it was okay about uh, espionage, the American Revolution. But I guess I have to go with the HBO John Adams with Paul Giamatti. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it like a year ago and I don't like to love everything about it. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's a good example of like uh, a perspective on, of a sympathetic perspective with somebody who doesn't usually get a sympathetic portrayal, you know, cause uh, so much uh, popular American history focuses on Thomas Jefferson, who I, I am not so much of a fan of, you know, and uh, it's, it's basically it kind of does the same thing that Hamilton did, but like 10 years earlier. And fortunately without nearly Lin-Manuel and Miranda.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Uh, I, I honestly don't, um, um, again, I'm not super familiar with American cinema. Unfortunately, I'm going to try to remedy that this year.
0: Um, but as of yeah, right he's, now, he's our Soviet not- man over here. He's the a. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, we will get to the Soviets. Um, but before that, any mm-hmm. uh, movies that, that come to mind about the French Revolution or really any other things from the early modern period you want to mention? Let me think.
2: Uh, well i'll just say this is you know, earlier early in the early modern period but i really just gotta hammer home how good wolf hall is it just it's made me think all oh, quite a lot about uh british history and the kind of formation of the early modern world or the modern world more broadly and i've been reading a lot about the early modern period the last this year especially which uh, and that's a period that i never was as familiar with as i was for some other periods and it's just it's so interesting Um, And that Hilary Mantel just does an amazing job constructing this world and drawing this uh, very beautiful emotional story out of an incredibly scarce historical record about these people.
1: Yeah, um, I'm going to have to say that uh, the 1966 version of War and Peace is an absolute must watch. Um, It's um, it's great. They like got a bunch of extras from the Red mm-hmm. Army to star in it. So you get actual battle scenes with like thousands of people. It's yeah. it's incredible to see.
0: All right. So moving on to the modern period, Um, there's so much to go into here. There's a oh, list, yeah. so many movies. So I'm trying to restrict it down a little bit to a few kind of key events, starting with the American Civil War. Hmm.
2: Um oh, uh, you froze for a second, Brian. Uh, or maybe it was me.
0: Uh the, I think the whole thing froze because you guys I saw it, it froze. Oh, okay. If you could so, go back
2: like 10 seconds then.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so starting with the American Civil War for our first like modern event.
1: Um I'm gonna have to say Lincoln. Uh it's kind of a snooze fest for many people, I know, but I I did very much enjoy uh Seeing this period depicted for for further context. It's about Mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, uh, Lincoln trying to get uh, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation through Congress at a time when, even as this war is being fought, there are many uh, toadies, uh, for lack of a better word, who just want peace, even if it means the preservation of slavery. And through this movie, you kind of get a sense of Lincoln's own evolution with regards to this question, because again, he has that famous line about how if I could preserve the union by keeping slavery, I would do it. Uh, um, And yeah, you can see how that man, the one that he was only like three years before that became an actual anti-slavery crusader who's trying to snuff that out, out specifically.
2: Yeah, well, I, I would say uh, kind of an, an earlier one. Uh, I wasn't as so much a fan of Lincoln. Uh, I, I respect what he was going for there, Spielberg, but I would say Glory from like 1992, I want to say, with uh, Denzel Washington and Matthew Broderick, which is an insane screen pairing. But they, they they're they're great together, which and uh, it's a, it's a really good movie about one of the African American regiments in the war, um, and it's I've I've been told that it's like one of the most historically accurate Civil War depictions. I'm not, I don't know enough about the Civil War to say if that's true. That's the question for uh, the war nerd, John Dolan. Mm. But uh, but I, I like that one a lot. Uh,
0: all right. So what about 19th century imperialism? That's a great one. There's a
2: lot to go out there. Um, so, okay. I, I Actually, I, I, I know. Absolutely. Uh, it's one that I just saw for the first time about a year ago that uh, I never knew existed. I think that, Sam, I've talked about this with you before. You might not remember this uh the four feathers from like 1939 or something like that does that ring a bell sam
1: uh no no it okay. doesn't
2: so the four feathers is a movie it's based on a book by like Hackery, i want to say that's from and it's set during uh the mostly forgotten uh 19th century what do they call it like the Mahdi war i guess they'd call it in sudan oh in, in the like 1880s the british empire went to war with this Islamic movement in around Khartoum, the capital of Sudan today. Uh, and the movie is about this guy uh, who uh, he is given a, a white feather as a sign of cowardice because he doesn't participate in the war. And so to redeem himself, he goes alone into Sudan to like rescue his friends who are being held captive by the, the modists. And so this is a movie with just completely repellent politics it is just openly pro-imperial it was written in 1935 like basically like the height of the british empire territorially when like everyone thought it was going to go on forever they you know because they didn't realize how how, how that the steam was already running out um and it's it's absolutely a piece of like naked imperial propaganda and but it's at the same time it's a really exciting compelling narrative and it's from like it's from the 30s but it's an early color film that's aged amazingly well from a narrative standpoint. I, I don't know if it was shot in Sudan itself, but it was a lot of, it was certainly shot in Egypt on location and, and seeing the vistas there is really interesting. And it's also when where the politics are so nakedly laid bare that you don't really have to worry about like, you know, being propagandized because like it's, it's all right in front of your eyes. And it's, it's a really interesting look at, uh, An aspect of historical memory that Americans today, especially that that people today, especially Americans, just don't really have any awareness of. That like this this small colonial conflict in Sudan, uh, the entire British Empire against a uh, over a a very much outmatched local uh, Sudanese army was seen as this essential struggle for civilization in the minds of Brits at that time. Mm hmm
1: yeah um, as for me, uh nothing really comes from nine uh nothing comes to mind movie wise for nineteenth century imperialism at the moment. Uh, but one that I recommend without any reservations whatsoever would be uh the the uh, the human condition trilogy, which is set in uh uh in World War two era Manchuria, basically, and it's about uh, the protagonist who's like this sort of left-leaning uh, a bureaucrat uh, from Japan who finds himself in the midst of absolutely incomprehensible uh, colonial repression of the Chinese and it basically tracks his journey as he is coming to understand uh, what Japan is doing and uh, what the way out is ultimately.
0: That sounds very interesting.
1: So Yeah, it's like 12 hours long by the way.
0: So it's not uh, <laughs> uh, not an afternoon watch. Uh I'm sure that'll be an interesting marathon going through that whole
1: <laughs>
0: All right. Um so skipping obviously so much uh World War 1 movies or TV shows.
1: Um recently there's that new "All Quiet on the Western Front" movie. Yeah. I, I watched I a couple it of days ago. Uh, I few I am, ago. Yeah, I am not a fan. But instead, I'm I am going to recommend the 1930 original. That yeah, one is far, far superior.
2: Pops, uh, but do t- 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 you guys tell us, Sam? Uh, why do you like the original better than the new one?
1: Um, I don't know. I just felt like, on the one hand, the new one does uh really show you a lot of the gore in ways that aren't present in the 1931 but it no, of course yeah but it felt like he was kind of relishing in it in a way i just mm. couldn't really stomach that
2: oh it's, it's kind of the whole like uh, no such thing as an anti-war movie problem
1: mm, yeah yeah or, like, maybe it's that's very it's, hard
2: to, it's hard to depict war in a in, in a traditional narrative without you know romanticizing it in some sense and mm-hmm. I certainly I, I don't think the movie was trying to do that. But uh, but I, I can see how you might see how I can see how you would you would think that like I, I, I get your interpretation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But speaking of romanticizing, uh, I'm also going to have to plug 1917, I think. Uh, although, again, it's not unqualified. I take issue with uh, how many things in that movie are uh, show showcased, but nevertheless, from a. Film perspective and from an emotional perspective, it's very good.
0: Um, Liam, did you have any on? No, All right. So, how about the. Th- this is. Uh, let's maybe take a little pause here because the film exists as a medium at this point in history. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. how do you guys think that the fact that like mo- events and stuff can be depicted in film immediately changes the way that yeah. we? think about and perceive the past.
2: Oh yeah, no it, it's 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 so important. Like we were talking earlier about how like the tropes of World War II movies existed in like 1941. Uh it's I think it's really interesting like um and, 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 it, that's just it just suddenly emerges around the time of World War 1, you know, cuz like the first commercial like feature-length movies come out right at the start of the war. Like I think a uh, Cabiria is like 1914, probably it's this Italian feature film Birth of a Nation 1915. Uh And so there's suddenly this enormous, uh, enormously fast way of conveying information about any part of the human experience, especially war, to the masses, you know, like, and uh, and even with news, like, I was so shocked to learn that there's footage of the Kronstadt rebellion in the Soviet Union. There is footage of the German Revolution in 1919. You can can see Uh it, you know? Yeah. and, and that just that really does uh, change the perspective, and that means that yeah, starting with the teens and the twenties, um, history is being filmed. Is history is being produced as fiction as it's happening in ways you can you can consume, like uh, usually like, the the Pobst. Uh, this is that was kind of a period piece, but like the the Pobst. Um, uh all quiet the western front came out in like 1930 or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah that's it and he did a silent one i think it was silent in germany before he came to the u.s called something like i think it was called like uh west front 1917 or something which is very similar and and that was just like basically like a decade after like a decade after the events took place which is which is very interesting and you can kind of you get to see this Popular consensus building in in real time. This you mm-hmm. see the construction of popular history.
1: Yeah, and it's very much a double edged sword because on the one hand you have the ability to convey much more information and make that stick, but on the other hand you have the ability to convey much more information and make that stick. So it's much <laughs> easier to shift people's perceptions through yeah. a movie than through uh, than through. Um, I'm um, a booklet, for example.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of shifting perceptions with movies, let's talk about some World War II movies, maybe some of the ones made like during or just prior to the war, and then the more retrospective ones.
2: Sure. I'll say for during the war, uh, there was a lot of surprisingly pro Soviet movies made in Hollywood in like 1944, 45, because, you know, there was su- such a need for cooperation with the USSR uh, and the Eastern Front. That um in the European theater, I mean that a uh, a lot of Hollywood producers were interested in more sympathetic portrayals of Soviet of recent Soviet history. Like I, I haven't seen it yet, but I really want to see it. I think it's from like 1943 or something. It's called Mission to Moscow because oh, it's, yes. a, it's a it's a movie about a real life uh, American uh, uh, about a real life American attaché to the USSR in the early 30s during like the infamous uh, Stalinist show trials of the purges. With a very sympathetic portrayal of the Stalinist government, which I think is like he's hilarious. I I, I really yeah. got, got a ground to watching that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. so did you have any? Yeah.
1: Uh nothing contemporary, but um I have a great uh, list of Soviet movies that I think Please, everyone Yeah, would enjoy. yeah. Shout Definitely. out
0: to your
2: favorites.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everyone knows the more famous ones like Come and See, The Cranes Are Flying. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I'm going to focus on ones that I think uh, Western audiences aren't as familiar with. Uh, I'm going to start with The Fate of a Man, uh, directed by Bandarchuk, uh 1959, I believe it is. And it's very interesting because it's not like the world war two movies that people are used to per se about like these grand battles and everything it's about, uh, the, um, it's about basically the story of a man being taken as a prisoner of war and the ordeals Mm -hmm. that he has to go through in a Nazi labor camp. Uh, it's very emotionally hard hitting and that's a definite, that's a definite must watch. I would have to say, um, Mm -hmm. I, I um I have more, but uh, Liam can go, if he'd like.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, for uh for I guess for looking for more recent World War II movies. Um, actually, nothing's automatically coming to mind. So you just keep, let's look up more you like, Sam.
1: Uh, okay. Well, another one that I watched recently actually is called uh The Ascent. Uh, it's a nineteen sixty nine movie by and by Larisa Shepitka, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and and again it's kind of an unconventional take in that it's looking at what happens to a group of partisans who in, in Belarus who get caught by the Germans mm-hmm. and how they respond to uh the enticement to become collaborators, mm-hmm. basically. It's a... Um, it's based uh, on a novel by a man named uh, Avassili mm-hmm. Uh That novel has been translated into English, by the way. So it is available if anyone would like to watch it. And the novel, mm-hmm. it does sketch out the world a bit better. But it's, uh, it's a wonderful uh, moral conundrum, right?
2: Yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. No, And actually, I was thinking of another uh, moral conundrum of World War II movie. There's this Japanese movie I like a lot, this anti-war Japanese one from the 50s called Harp of Burma, which is about this stranded group of Japanese soldiers at the end of the war in Burma, this, like, imperialist expeditionary force who basically have to make the choice to betray their Japanese homeland, which is pretty cool. Uh, and uh, one other one I just thought of, that's another kind of similar, like, morally complex World War II movie. Uh uh, a Bridge Too Far, this 70s British movie. It's like the last old-school traditional World War II movie with a very, like, old-school soundtrack. It, it feels like it could have been made in the 50s with one big difference, which is that it depicts a, a pretty rare uh, allied failure in the European theater. It's about the... Uh, I think it's called, like, the Arnhem Campaign or something. Some, like, pretty small and unimportant town in, uh, in like... The Netherlands, I think, or maybe Belgium, and uh, basically the the just, like stodgy aristocratic British command, they just didn't listen to anyone on the ground, which led to this very awful defeat at the hands of the Nazis, where all these British troops were captured prisoner. And it's just, it's a very well it's a very well done movie, and it's very depressing because it's a story of failure. And so at the time, people hated it. It's kind of like how nobody wanted to watch um, nobody wanted to watch The Last Valley right after Vietnam. Nobody wanted Mm -hmm. to watch a movie about the good guys losing a battle in World War II after Vietnam. Also,
0: Mm -hmm. right. Any other World War II movies you
1: guys? Uh, I guess I'm going to plug my grandfather's favorite. uh, Rest in peace. Uh, It's a movie called Only Old Men Go Into Battle, uh, Mm -hmm. which is. it's much more sentimental. It's basically uh, the story of a regiment, the, uh, this group of friends, basically, in uh, uh, during World War II and, like, in, what's today, Ukraine, I, I guess, around 1943. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically, like, covers the life of this regiment. And uh, there's love, uh, there's drama, there's, uh, of course, uh, death. And it's a
0: great movie. All right. So there's, I think too many historical events in the 20th century to get into all of them. So yeah. I'm just going to break it up into cold war and then post cold war era. What are some of your just favorites about anything from the Cold War era. Well, I
2: would anything by Jean Le Carré. Uh, when it comes to Cold War espionage, he's just the master of that. I, I still have to get around to actually reading his novels. <laughs> but, uh, but the adaptations I've seen of any of them are just excellent. The Little Drummer Girl, both versions of Tinker Tailor Spy. And the one I'm going to focus on right now is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I want to say like 66, 68 with Richard Burton. It is the anti-James Bond. It's this very cool and depressing uh very almost slow paced at times espionage movie about the daily life of this mi6 agent who is in, locked in this years-long chase with an east german agent mm-hmm. and so it's this really cool cat and mouse game between two guys who never actually meet each other as you you think one of them has the upper hand then the other guy does it's it's kind of depressing but it's so tense and uh, it manages to be incredibly tense without needing any kind of extensive scenes of, like, gunplay. You know, it's, like, it's as exciting as a James Bond movie without a single explosion.
0: Very cool. Sam? Uh,
1: I'm going to go with the conventional one this time and say Dr. Strange Club, of course.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah you got to love it. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Uh... If you want but, there's, the there's, there's so many though, because so many movies from the twenty, uh, from like the '60s, '70s, and '80s are just in about in some way the Cold War, if in spirit, if not in letter. You know, like The French Connection deals with like actual gladio. It's based on a story of how um the French equivalent to the gladio program was involved in heroin smuggling from Anatolia into Europe and eventually into the U.S. That was the French connection, was how Corsican French mobsters imported the heroin. And that's, I think that's super cool. Uh, We did an episode really early with our good friend James, who's coming on again in a couple of days, hopefully, uh, about um, The Parallax View, which is a very weird uh, movie uh, from the 70s, sort of inspired by the early mythos of Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. And a, A lot of deals with kind of just like, knowing something is going on, but having this truth be just be not beyond your grasp. you knowing something's going on, but having this truth be just beyond your grasp. And as soon as you think you've uncovered something, you just have more questions than answers, which I think you were know, talking about parapolitics. Like that's something that, you know, that's whenever any, you ever try to investigate any of the really creepy, mysterious stuff in the 20th century. Uh, I think that anybody who knows what was going on back then is just trying to sell you something.
0: Mm. Uh, Sam, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, um, no, no, not really. All right. So moving on to the post-Cold War era, there's a lot. So what oh, yeah. are some of your favorites? Uh,
2: another one, uh, I think this is also Ridley Scott. He's coming up so often today. Uh, another one with very bad politics, very like, as reactionary as The Four Feathers, but a really good movie and a really important movie for understanding the modern world is Black Hawk Down. Uh, it's about what the US Army was getting up to, I think the army, maybe the Marines, I don't know, in Somalia in like 1997 or something. And it's, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's not trying to be, but it's very racist. It's it's very, de- the depiction of Somalis is really unfortunate, but it completely set the tone aesthetically and politically for the cold, for the uh, for the war on terror, even though it came out like in like 2000, even before 9/11, mm-hmm. and so that that one movie like totally picks up on the cultural mood of like the next 10, 15 years, which I think is really interesting. And also something I think is kind of interesting talking about um, uh, if historical fiction has any kind of like ha- has any kind of ethical obligation, this certainly fails any obligation it has because it is a completely inaccurate depiction of what actually went down in Somalia. It paints the Somalis as just absolutely terrible, as monstrous barbarians and t- depicts the American soldiers as heroes, even though the main character in the film, very shortly after the, the events of the film which took place, would be arrested as a child molester. So it's a movie I where like that. the main character is an actual pedophile, but it's so c- committed to this imperial project that it completely sanitizes that and has no problem making him the main character.
0: That's crazy that it came out before 9/11. I would have assumed that it came. that's very it's interesting. Such
2: a 9/11 movie, you know? Like yeah, like I don't like Radiohead, like 35-year-old guys who are always talking about how Radiohead's the best band. They're always telling you how it's amazing that Kid A came out before 9/11. That's what I feel with this movie.
0: Huh. Interesting. Sam, do you have any uh post-Cold War movies that come to mind? Um, post-Cold War. Ah, uh...
1: I mean, it's one of those questions where it's like so broad that I can't even think think of an yeah. answer right. Um, yeah.
0: I could try to narrow down. I mean, well, like one
2: I, 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 I can jump on one, one quick one. Uh, it's it's really bad, but it's really funny uh, in how bad it is. Green Zone from like 2012, I think with Matt Damon and with Brendan Gleeson. It's, uh, it's this movie where uh, it's very interesting because it's about the CIA are like totally the good guys in this. And they're trying to stop the Department of Defense under George Bush from uh, doing something bad in Iraq, like making some bad mistake. Mm-hmm. And so th- that kind of shows that that, that that's uh, kind of this, uh, this. it came out in like 2012, but it kind of prefigures the politics of the Trump era, where the three-letter agencies are seen as professional and virtuous and mm-hmm. beyond reproach, whereas the political appointees in the Department of Defense, those are the guys you can't trust. The CIA though, they have everyone's best interests at heart. But the main reason, and it's, it's a terrible movie, but if you are gonna watch it, there's really one reason to watch it, which is that, Brendan Gleason does the world's worst American accent. It's the worst <laughs> accent I've ever heard. It makes Michael Caine in the Last Valley look like, you know, Funny. he did the Stanislavski method. It's just amazing how bad he is. And this is an, from one of the best actors of our generation. It's hilarious.
1: Yeah. Um, well, okay. Uh, I, I have the Coen brothers on my mind because we just mm-hmm. did one about one of their movies, but uh I mean, I would have to say that um,
2: for reading. uh,
1: No, I mean, and that one is kind of questionable politically, but I got to say it's definitely the big Lebowski in many respects, just because it's like kind of this movie about like, what are we even doing because yeah. it's like literally like a couple of years after the end of the cold war uh yeah. america's the top honcho and yeah. now there's just nothing really to do so yeah so in a sense we were all lebowski's for a while just uh, trying to get yeah. into a bunch of weird hijinks to make sense dude, of it all the, yeah
2: the dude abides uh and what i think is interesting about the big lebowski is that it's it's from like 2001 but it's set much it's set earlier it's set in like 1990 and I, at the time i couldn't really figure out why that was because you wouldn't know it's like it's set in the early 90s you'd think it was set like when it was made but maybe they were really going for that whole like post cold war malaise kind of thing maybe that that was the point maybe that's why it was 91 not 2001
0: hmm. yeah that's a very interesting pick i wouldn't have thought of that all right so last question i have for you guys it's a, it's a hypothetical. If mm. you were given like $200 million, well, yeah. make a movie about yeah. some historical event, what would there's you guys so think? Much,
2: there's so much I'd love to do. Uh, Russian Sam, if you've any, I have a few, but if you have any ideas first, Sam. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: well, Williams heard this idea before, but mm-hmm. I would absolutely love to make like an anthology series about the Russian civil war where oh, yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, each episode being a different uh, theater, a t- totally different characters, totally unconnected, just with the connecting theme of all of these events take place during the Russian Civil
2: War. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, 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 no, no. That would be incredible. Uh, uh, there's a few I have that I would not be the best person to make for like, you know, cultural fluency reasons because they're about places and times I'm just not familiar enough with. But I think that if somebody, if I could give a different or maybe a co-writer or a different different director half, a lot of this money, something could be good. Like I was thinking, um, you could make an amazing high budget Netflix series about ancient Chinese history where you get Chinese American actors speaking English to do like different episodes from the history of China, like you start off in the 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 early Bronze Age with its, where it's like guys and chariots having clan arguments that are basically like the Northmen, but in China. Like, I'd love that shit. And then mm. you go into the the Tang Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty with these like small, self-contained stories. I think that would be an amazing miniseries. I also think, but for a, a movie, something I've thought could be really fun for a long time, it's such an obscure little story, but you could do so much fun with this. In the Ninth and 10th century. Uh, so, you know, famously, uh, the the era, uh, the Moors, you know, they invaded uh, Spain. They had this beautiful flourishing of culture in Al-Andalus in, you know, in Spain. But they also, uh, the Moors also attempted to settle in France, where they were defeated uh, in like the 8th century by uh, Charlemagne's dad, I want to say, or his like great-grandfather. Uh, uh, Charles Martel. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember their relationship. Uh, and uh, people see that a lot of times it's seen as this, like, great, uh, uh, great, you know, imp- huge turning point in history, uh, but historians kind of question how important that one battle was because there actually was a, a, a Moorish presence in the south of France for a while after, and the longest lasting Moorish presence in France was this tiny castle called Froxenetum at, the, in like, the bottom of France on the Mediterranean, uh, where for like 200 years, a skeleton crew of Arab pirates, or not just Arab, Muslim pirates from all around the world, lived at this little castle uh, doing land and sea raids on passing merchants. And it was literally, it was a thorn in the side of of the French for like 200 years. And it was a thorn literally because the best defense this castle had was that they planted incredibly thorny brambles all around it. So there was no way to access the castle by land. Uh, there was like a secret passageway. Like, it might have even been a secret tunnel that only these pirates knew. And for two hundred years, they were just doing pirate stuff in on land and on sea. They would like go all the way into the Alps and grab like pilgrims and help hold them for ransom. But it was always this super tiny crew of guys from like the fringes of the Muslim world. They were guys from Central Asia who were like running from their past. There were guys from Spain. They were like. I, I'm going to guess there are probably some like, you know, former noblemen who like lost out in some dynastic struggle trying to make a career there. So I think you could do a really fun pirate movie about these like early medieval Arab guys in this like feudal struggle to like they, they some of them were probably true believers that thought they could, you know, spread the light of Islam to France. But uh, really, they were just trying to like get by by taking hostages and stealing treasure wherever they could.
0: Yeah, that sounds super, super cool. Huh? Did not know about that. That's really interesting.
2: Yeah. So yeah. So Fraxinetum range in China. That's what I would uh, give my money for.
0: Okay. Very mm. cool. Uh, any other like last words you guys have? Yeah. Well, I'll just say this. Um.
2: Uh, this podcast has been a really fun part of my life for the last couple of years. Uh, Russian Sam, Sam B. Abram are all really great and fun people to work with. I've really enjoyed being part of this. Uh, It just, it's it's really, we just started a Patreon, but it really is still just a hobby for us. Um, But it's a really fun hobby that gives my life a lot more meaning. It gives me kind of a reason to study history more than just because it's fun. Uh, It kind of like, it's really interesting just having these conversations with guests, with with guests and with people that we are guests for, like yourself, and just uh, having a reason to think about history and in particular historical fiction in a different way. In my more professional life, I... I am sort of I am in the film industry in a very low level way. I'm I would love to be involved in producing historical fiction, and I I've realized uh, through this podcast that people who make historical fiction do have certain responsibilities that other fiction does not entail, and uh, I am much more aware of these responsibilities when I am constructing historical fiction than I would be in the past. Basically, just in what function is this serving in how people interpret the past? If if you are depicting a time and place that people have no familiarity with, this is going to be their only, this is going to be the basis of their fluency in that setting. So you do have this obligation to present that setting in a way that is responsible. And I would say generally in a way that is historically accurate to the actual time itself.
1: Yeah, thank you, Hmm. Sam um i guess i just like to quote ecclesiastes uh there's nothing new under the sun that book was written in like the second century of the common era i'd say and yet nevertheless uh that's it still rings true and if this is if this was their perspective uh nearly two thousand years ago then it just leaves you in a very um very interesting place because um, at that point, it's like, why even study history? Whereas for me, it that's exactly why I study history, because I want to understand these patterns. I want to engage with the world in a in a deeper way, something beyond uh, just my own life and my own experience. And even if I don't think it's necessarily always applicable to Anything larger, I think that we can all become better people by becoming more engaged with history.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think and so. yeah, I, yeah, and I think that trying to learn too much, I think that trying to draw like direct lessons from the past about the present can lead to some dangerous ends, or at least to to be having a confused impression about the past and the present. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, there is just so much that was so different about the past. That gives you a lot to think about in many different ways and then uh what i find especially uh what i like the most about learning about the past is finding the unexpected ways in that people in the past were similar to us in ways that you know, they, they felt the same things that we feel even if they were living in like second century bc mesoamerica people still mm-hmm. had basically the same you know emotional arsenal that we've got when when people's when people saw their children grow up and die they we're heartbroken,
1: you know, things like that. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe on a lighter note, uh, I'm currently reading about uh, the cult of saints, um, and Catholicism. And mm-hmm. there was this really funny tidbit in there about how, uh, a lot of people looked upon, uh, Saint days, uh, with some disdain because it was basically an opportunity for young people to, uh, you know, start pairing, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and uh, having sex. And and I was reading that today and I was just yeah. thinking, man, some things just never change.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Liam, Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. For sure. for
2: thank you so much for having us on. And uh, let me apologize. Uh, we are both terrible ramblers and I hope it wasn't
0: <laughs> no, too was much was very for you. It was a very fun, very interesting conversation. If our listeners want more Gladio Free Europe, where can they find it? We're
2: everywhere. Uh, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, uh, just look up Gladio Free Europe. I think I think we do now come up on the first page of Google results when you just search Gladio, but our full podcast name is Gladio Free
0: Europe. All right, great. Thank you. This has been So We Have a Podcast made by WXVU Radio. We will see you next time.